you guys know that I really enjoy sports, basketball, football. Um, something that's been common for some superstar athletes like Peyton Manning and Eli Manning and other NBA stars, even LeBron James and Michael Jordan. They have gone to different college camps and tryouts and things like that. They have put on disguises, wigs, costumes, and they have pretended to be a high schooler. I just watched a video of Eli Manning doing this where, you know, he's won the Super Bowl two times and he's a great almost Hall of Fame level quarterback. And he puts on this costume and pretends to be an 18-year-old kid trying out for the Penn State football team. And it's so funny to watch the scouts see him throw the ball because they just think he's a high school kid. And he's throwing 40, 50-yard touchdown passes down the field. And the scouts are thinking, this kid's really good. Like, we might have something here. Like, we're going we're gonna to be really good this year. And then they find out that later on it's Eli Manning who played in the NFL. In our text this morning, Philip, the evangelist, has an unexpected encounter. And yet it's not unexpected in the eyes of the Lord. One of the interesting things we've seen in the book of Acts is that God directs the church as it grows. God is the one who spreads the gospel out to the ends of the earth. We know that Christ says in Acts 1 that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen in Acts as we've gone through this book how God providentially works through his church to accomplish that mission. In our sermon last week, we saw how the gospel went out to Judea and Samaria because of persecution. Because the church is persecuted, Stephen had died, the church has to spread out. But that spreading out was actually good for the church in that the Samaritans heard the gospel. And we have this encounter between Philip and a man who's not named. He's called the Ethiopian eunuch. And while there are some implications of what happens here, in the grand scheme of things in Acts, you might wonder, why is this story here? We don't hear really about this man ever again. We don't really hear about Ethiopia again in Acts. So why is this story here? Well, I think this story is here because it's a beautiful display of the gospel. Because we see a man who really would have been rejected by Judaism. He would have been rejected by culture because of his status as a eunuch. But he is able to hear and understand the gospel from Philip. You know, I loved what Tim did this morning in Sunday school. He had everyone go around and share their testimony. Everyone, at some point, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, has encountered Jesus, the Lamb of Glory. You've had an experience with him. And I would say that some people don't know the exact time. They may not be able to tell you the exact date. In fact, I've got one friend. He is a very strong Christian, one of the most regenerate people I've ever met. He couldn't tell you what day it happened on. There was one day where he started to understand that he was a sinner, and it happened over a span of time that, he, that God worked on his heart, drew him to himself, and he was saved. But he couldn't tell you just one day that that happened on. It was over a long expanse of time. Everyone has an encounter, if you're a Christian, with the gospel. And in our text this morning, we see the Ethiopian eunuch's encounter with the gospel through Philip the evangelist. Now, this is a great display of the gospel, but it also is a great encouragement for us in evangelism. 
The truth is, is that we struggle with evangelism, don't we? Now, that can be based on your personality. Maybe you're a louder person and it's easier for you to go talk to new people. Maybe you're a quieter person and talking to new people is a little bit more intimidating for you. Wherever you fall on the spectrum, Christians can struggle in sharing the gospel with people. I myself, even as your pastor, will admit that there are times when I either don't feel like sharing the gospel, I don't feel like I'm equipped to share the gospel with someone, I don't know what's going to happen, and it can lead me to fear and doubt. There are plenty of excuses we use for not sharing the gospel with someone else. You might hear people say, I don't have anyone to share it with. I don't know any unsaved people. God hasn't put anyone into my life that I can share the gospel with. When in reality, if you really look around, there are plenty of people around you that you can share the gospel with. You might hear other people say, I wouldn't know what to say. I'm not good with words. I don't know how to share the gospel with someone. Well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you must understand the gospel well enough for you to be a Christian. And so just share what God has done in your life. In fact, sharing your testimony like we did in Sunday school is a great tool to share the gospel with someone else. You might hear someone say they wouldn't listen to me anyways. I don't have enough time. God will use someone else in their life. But the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning is this. How might God use me to share the gospel with someone else? How might God use me to share the gospel with someone else? And I think in this text this morning, the main idea that I want us to see is this. It's that we should faithfully share the Lamb of God with a desperate and broken world. In our singing, what we've talked about this morning, we've been focused on the Lamb of God. And that's because that's the text the Ethiopian eunuch was reading as he was on the road when Philip shared the gospel with him. And the truth is, the eunuch didn't know what he was reading, but he desperately needed to understand who Jesus Christ was and what he had done for him. So we should faithfully share the Lamb of God with a desperate and broken world. As we consider how, might God, how God might use us to share the gospel, I think there's three principles that we can gather from Acts chapter 8 that really answer our objections to evangelism. Those questions that I brought up, these principles in Acts 8 help us answer these questions and really remove any doubt that God can use us to share the gospel. The first principle is this, let God's spirit direct your interactions. You'll hear people say oftentimes, I wouldn't know who to talk to. I don't know any unsaved people. Well, let God's spirit direct your interaction. Now, let me show you what I mean by that in verse 26. Look with me in Acts 8 verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go south to the road that goes down to Jerusalem in Gaza, this is a desert place. We met Philip all the way a couple weeks ago in Acts 6 with the first deacons. He was one of those seven Hellenistic Christians who were part of the church's first deacons. In last week's sermon in Acts 8, Philip goes down to Samaria. He's one of those Jews that left Jerusalem because of the persecution. He's in Samaria and he preaches the gospel with many people. Many people get saved. He's used by God mightily. And now, the angel of the Lord is directing him here 
And there's some questions about the angel of the Lord. In the Old Testament, many people, and I think rightly at least assume, or it's a good guess, that the angel of the Lord is Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, why do I say that? Well, the angel of the Lord actually receives worship. In the different times when Old Testament characters would meet the angel of the Lord, they would bow down and worship him. Now, the other angels would tell them not to do this, but the angel of the Lord actually receives worship. And so there's some confusion over the identity of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, but the angel of the Lord here I actually don't think is Jesus. And here's why. If it was Jesus, I think Luke would have told us it's Jesus. If you go back to Acts 7, Jesus appears to Stephen right before he's about to die. And he says he sees the Son of Man. He sees Christ. So I think if it was Jesus, since he's already been revealed in the flesh, Luke would tell us that he saw Jesus. So an angel of the Lord, a messenger, remember angel in Greek means messenger, comes to Philip and he says, rise and go toward the south road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now we last left Philip what we thought in what we thought was Samaria, but it seems as if he went with the apostles back to Jerusalem. He went back to Jerusalem, and now he's headed down towards Gaza. Gaza is in the land that was formerly known as the Philistines. We have a lot of interactions between the children of Israel and the Philistines in the Old Testament. Now, the city of Gaza was actually destroyed by a Jewish ruler named Alexander Janius in 96 BC. And so he was actually going to a deserted place there south of Jerusalem. And he tells us, he says it's a desert place. So Philip is responsive to this angel. He, in verse 27, it says, and he rose and went. He starts going down. Now, if you're Philip, you're probably thinking that once you get to the city, that's where you're going to meet the person or figure out what God has you going there to do. But that's not what happened. It says, as he rose and went, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. Now, this person was a eunuch. He'd lost his sexual function. He was an officer of the court of the Ethiopians. A lot of times they became eunuchs in those days if they were put in some kind of official role like that so that people could trust them more. He seems to have risen to power, though, during this time because it says in the verse he was in charge of all of her treasure. So while he was a disabled man, he was actually a man of great importance in Ethiopia. He's a very wealthy man. We're going to see that because he has a chariot. And he has his own copy of the book of Isaiah, which in those days was pretty rare to have. Now, it says he was a court official of Candace. Candace is actually a transliteration of the title for the queen of Ethiopia. Much like you would say Pharaoh is the king of Egypt or Caesar is the emperor of Rome. Candace was the name for the official for the queen of Ethiopia. And it says he was in charge of her treasure, and, look at that last phrase, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And you might think, why would an Ethiopian go to Jerusalem to worship? It seems to be that he was a proselyte. Now, the word proselyte means a Gentile that was Jewish, that practiced Jewish customs. You see, there were Gentiles, there were non-Jews racially, 
that actually adopted Jewish practices. And it seems to be that this Ethiopian man became a Jew, and he was a God-fearing man, at least. But because he's a eunuch, he could not worship God fully. He could not go into the inner parts of the temple. He probably was restricted to the courts of the Gentiles. So we see he's an important man. He's a um, devout Jewish man, but he's also a restricted man. He can't experience God like the other Jews could. We'll look at verse 28. It says, and he was, and was returning. So he's gone to Jerusalem to worship. It seems as if he's coming back from Jerusalem the other way. And it says he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So again, he has his own copy of Isaiah. So if you're Philip, you're probably wondering, is this the person that God has for me to talk to? Is this why God has sent me here? And notice God makes it abundantly clear in verse 29. It says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join his chariot. So Philip, directed by the Spirit of God, goes over and joins his chariot. Now we noticed earlier it was the angel of the Lord that told him to go down to Gaza, and now it's the Spirit of God. But it's really all God directing Philip's actions. If you're like me, you've often probably prayed, God, give me an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. Give me someone in my life that needs the gospel. Yet sometimes I'll reflect at the end of my day, and I will have met five or six people that actually needed the gospel, and I won't have thought anything of it. If you pray and ask God, hey, give me someone that I can share the gospel with, the odds are God is going to answer that prayer. It just may not be someone that you think it's going to be. God is in charge of the gospel. He's the one who spreads his word. Sometimes we need to be faithful in sharing that word with others. Now, how do I think God does this? Do I think that God whispers in your ear or you know, puts an arrow over someone who needs the gospel? Well, no, probably not. But oftentimes he'll put someone in your life who you can share the gospel with. Do you allow God's spirits to direct your evangelism? You might say, I don't know anyone who needs the gospel. I've thought that at different points. And then I think of unsaved family that I have. And yes, they're far away from the Lord and they have different political views than I do. And they, that we don't have as much to talk about at the Thanksgiving table as maybe other saved family members do. But yet there are people God has put in my life who I could be sharing the gospel with. Ask God for direction and evangelism. Do you constantly pray for opportunities to share the gospel with others? Sometimes we don't have those opportunities simply because we don't ask for them. Think about those around you who you know in your family and your friends. Maybe people you've already shared the gospel with. Could God give you an opportunity to share the gospel with them? I remember my grandpa on my dad's side. He was a man that was really hurt by the church. And my dad had tried sharing the gospel with him. My dad never saw him in church because of a bad experience he had had. And my dad just eventually gave up praying for him until my grandma died. And when my grandma died, 
my dad once again started praying for my grandpa. And in the last six months of his life, before the Lord took him away, I saw my grandpa's heart soften to the gospel. And I believe that he accepted the gospel before he died. Sometimes God works in people's lives in ways that we don't expect for him to. You ask God to show you people in your life who you could share the gospel with. Do you allow the Spirit to direct you for the Spirit's help in sharing the gospel? You might think, I don't have the boldness. I don't know what I would say. Well, the good news is it's not about what you have to say. It's about God's word. How often do you follow up with people you've shared the gospel with before? How often do you ask them how they're doing, catch up with them? You don't have to point every conversation that you have back to the Bible necessarily, but are you working on building relationships with them? You know what the sad truth of the church in America is today? It's that we will spend more time complaining about the lost state of the world than we will in actually sharing the gospel with them. Now, the world is bad. The world has a lot of nastiness, corruption, sin, political drama. And I do loathe and, and I can be guilty of complaining about the world. But the sad truth of our churches is that we will spend more time complaining about those people than we will in actually sharing the gospel with them. Spurgeon said this, he said, I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus Christ than unravel all the mysteries of the divine word for salvation, the one thing we are to live for. He said, I would rather see one sinner brought to Christ than to know all the deepest, profound mysteries of the Bible. You'll be tempted to tell yourself and tell others that you have no opportunity to share the gospel, when in reality we can allow God's Spirit to direct us in who we meet and can share the gospel with. Secondly, let God's Word comprise your message. Oftentimes I can be guilty of this. You can probably be guilty of this too. You might think, I don't know what I would say. I don't have anything that I could tell someone who needs to hear the gospel. Well, that's probably a good thing because the more of you that is in sharing the gospel means there's going to be less Bible and less actual gospel. What we really need is not more of our opinions, our stories, our illustrations. What we really need when we share the gospel is the gospel, the word of God. And what I love about this story is that's what Philip does. Look with me at verse 30. So Philip ran to him. He immediately obeys the spirit and he runs to the Ethiopian eunuch. And while he's running over to him, he hears him reading the book of Isaiah. He's probably reading it out loud so that he could understand. Remember, the scrolls that they had, it was very rare for someone to have their own individual copy of God's word. So oftentimes they would read it out loud to help understand it better. And just side note, comment, little plug for this. Oftentimes when I've struggled understanding scripture... It helps if I read it out loud. I don't know why, but sometimes if you just say it out loud, read it out loud, it can make a little more sense. I can look over it without reading it out loud five or six times. But sometimes I just need to read it out loud to understand 
what it's saying. That's not necessarily a biblical principle, but just something that I've picked up. In verse 31, it says, and he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? So Philip asks him, you understand what you are reading? And the eunuch says, well, unless somebody shows me what I'm reading, helps me understand what I'm reading, then how could I possibly understand this? The truth is, sometimes when we share the gospel, sometimes even when I'm preaching, I can forget how much theological language I use. And I, I love theology. Theology is good. We should push people to understand theological terms like redemption, justification, sanctification. Those are good things. But what I forget sometimes is that unsaved people don't know what those words mean. In fact, we're getting to a point in our society where people are more biblically illiterate than ever before. What do I mean by that? Children are not being taught the Bible in their homes. Some children aren't even being taught the Bible in their churches that they go to. And so when you explain to them the gospel, but you use these loaded terms, sometimes they don't understand what they mean. So it can be simply that you just help them understand those words. You explain it to them. This eunuch is having trouble with the text, and he needs Philip to help him understand. So Philip gets into the chariot, and he starts reading the passage with him. Sometimes in evangelism, it takes longer than just a five-minute conversation at the airport. In fact, sometimes I think the best evangelism is when you can work with someone for weeks on weeks and helping them understand the gospel clearly and then plugging them into a local church. Look at verse 32. It says, Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. This comes from Isaiah chapter 53. In fact, put a marker here in Acts 8 and turn to Isaiah 53 for just a moment. Isaiah is right before Jeremiah. It's a long book. It's a very long book. In Isaiah's, chap in Isaiah's book, in chapters 49 through 57, we see what's called the servant songs. They're songs about the suffering servant in Isaiah. It's a large nine-chapter section dealing with this servant Messiah who would fulfill this ministry. Now, I just want to say that a lot of people will have questions today when they read this about what would this servant Messiah do. But the question that the eunuch actually had is who is this person? Now, we know today that it's Christ. That's very clear, especially from this passage. We know that this is Christ. There was actually some confusion at this point on who this is actually talking about. Some of the Jews thought it was talking about Isaiah. And if you look at this conversation, the eunuch actually says, is it talking about Isaiah or is it talking about someone else? In this nine-chapter section of Isaiah... Isaiah writes about how the servant Messiah would restore the covenant people of God. First about how he would be rejected by those people. 
then shows how the remnant of believers would be preserved and exalted. And then in our verses, we see the rejection of that servant and then the exaltation of that servant. Then in the later chapters, it will show how salvation is actually provided. If you know Philippians 2, Philippians 2 actually goes along very well with Isaiah 53. In Philippians 2, Paul talks about the humility of Christ, saying he was equal with God, yet he took on human flesh, humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, but then therefore because of that, God has highly exalted him and has given him a name above every name. So what we're seeing in Isaiah 53 is this humiliation of Christ. And the verses that the eunuch is reading are verses six or verses seven and eight. Very similar to what we see in Acts 8. It says in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silence. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Now again, we see this humiliation of Christ here. He humbly submits to death. It is the tendency of sheep to follow others. That's why we are called sheep in scripture. We're followers. Yet this lamb humbly follows its shearers to his death. It was common when a sheep would go to its death, it would follow its people who were leading it there because it didn't know any better. And Christ, our lamb of God, was silent while he was accused. He didn't argue. He didn't fight. He could have, right? He could have fought against those who were going to execute him. But it says, like a sheep led to the slaughter, he was silent. He did not open his mouth. This Lamb of God that we've sung about, that's so glorious. In Revelation 5, we read about him. He's the one worthy to open the scroll. He's the one that everyone is going to worship. And yet he is quiet. He humbly obeys death. In verse 33, it says, In humiliation, justice was denied to him. Again, we see that he was humbled. Christ was humbled in the one sense that he took on our human flesh. You know that it was a humbling thing for Christ to become like us. And he lived a real human life. We often focus on the fact that he's God and 100% God. But he was also man as well. He didn't sin, but he felt everything that we feel in life. He was humbled. He was humbled to the point of death. The justice that he deserved was denied to him. It then says, who can describe his generation? Another translation, maybe a better translation of that phrase, would be, who in his generation considered him? What does that mean? Who, when he died, really understood what his death actually meant? His disciples didn't. They all ran away and hid. They all were afraid of this fact that their master had died, even though Christ told them, 
over and over and over again. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again three days later. The Jews obviously didn't realize that he was the Christ. They put him to death. The only one who really understands at his death that something is going on here is the Roman centurion who says, truly, this is the Son of God. It then says, for his life is taken away from the earth. Now, in the context, I think that Isaiah was writing about his death, how he died, how he was taken away from the earth. Some have also taken this to say that he was resurrected and actually ascended into heaven, which we obviously know is true. And so the eunuch has questions about this. He's saying, is this someone else? Is this Isaiah? Is it another prophet? And notice what happens in verse 35. It says, so he opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Did Philip come up with his own illustrations, his own philosophy, his own methods for sharing the gospel? No. Did he use a, and I've got nothing against gospel tracks, but did he use some kind of handy, nifty gospel track? No, even though those aren't bad necessarily. Did he show him a YouTube video? Did he have a cool little acronym for how he could share the gospel with someone? No, what did he do? He used the Bible. He used scripture and he allowed scripture to share the gospel. Now think about this. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the Romans road. He didn't have any of these verses, even in Acts, where we see the gospel explained. Where did he take the eunuch? The Old Testament. Read your Old Testament. Like Tim said, the Old Testament points us to Christ. The Old Testament points us to Jesus and to the plan of God through Christ. So he starts with this scripture and uses others to show how Jesus is the Christ. There's a very famous illustration from Charles Spurgeon where he compares the gospel to a lion. And he says that there are people who are trying to guard the lion, who are trying to protect the lion in this cage, from other people who are attacking it and trying to kill it. And Spurgeon says, what is the best defense of the lion? He says, let the lion out of the cage. If you let the lion out of the cage, the lion's going to be able to defend himself way better than you can. It's the same way with God's word. We often try to defend God's word on Facebook and Twitter and social media. We try to have all these little arguments and philosophies and different little sayings that we have that we've come up with ourselves. Those things may not be bad, but the, the best defense of scripture is scripture the best defense of the gospel is the gospel the best way to share the gospel with someone else is and i know this is shocking mind-blowing the best way to share the gospel with someone is to share the gospel with them to use the bible now that requires something that requires that you actually understand god's word you study God's word, do you understand it well enough that you can share it with others? That you can share it with others who need the gospel? And do you rely on God's word 
and your evangelism to share the gospel with others. Faithfully share God's word. We want to faithfully share the Lamb of God, this gospel with others, so that they can repent and be saved. Finally, let's look at verses 36 through 40. And we'll, in our last principle, let God's gospel transform their life. Let God's gospel transform their life. Look at verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, there's a problem here, okay? And here's the problem. In the translation that Tim read for us, there is a verse 37. If you're using a King James Bible or even probably a New King James Bible, there's a verse 37 there. In the ESV and the NASB and some of the more modern translations, that verse is actually taken out. And that's because there's some debate over this passage. So the one thing we have to understand about the translations is that the King James Version or the ESV was not what the Apostle Luke, or it's not what Luke wrote 2,000 years ago. We all know that, right? He didn't write in King James. He didn't write in the ESV. They wrote in Greek. And there were thousands of manuscripts that were collected. And so when we think about these texts, sometimes there will be variations over what is in the original manuscripts and what was not. So the reason that the ESV and the NASB and other translations don't have this verse in their Bibles is because it's actually not found in the earliest manuscripts. Now, it is found in more manuscripts that were written later that the King James uses, but it was not found in the critical texts or the earliest manuscripts. And so the question just becomes, which one is right? And I don't think you should go by necessarily a certain translation and say, okay, the ESV is always right, or the King James is always right. But I think the question has to be this. What did God's word say? What did God's word actually say? And when we start with that, it helps us understand what is actually going on. Now, there are other passages that are probably more um, difficult to try to figure out. This is what I believe about this passage. So was this verse actually in the original text? And I would say I'm not sure. It wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. That doesn't mean it couldn't have been there. But in the earliest manuscripts we have, it wasn't there. But it is in more manuscripts that the King James Version of the Bible used. This is what I'll say. I would say that even if it wasn't there, a conversation like this probably happened. Okay? A conversation like the one that takes place here probably happened. Now, whether or not that means it's actually Scripture, we're not sure. But I do think they had a conversation about believing in the gospel before the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized. Does that make sense? This is a difficult passage for us to understand. There's more difficult issues within this. Whether or not this verse is actually part of the original manuscripts, again, not 100% sure. But do I think this conversation actually happened? Absolutely. I think there was a conversation like this that took place. So he hears the gospel. He repents of his sins, trusts Christ, and then sees some water and is baptized. Look at verse 38. Well, he's asking, he's asking in verse 36, what prevents me from being baptized? 
So again, we assume there was a conversation like what is in the King James Version that actually took place. And then in verse 38, he commands the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So he's baptized. And remember, baptism doesn't save you, but it is a public profession of your faith. It's telling others that you are a follower of Christ. Now there's another less significant problem, but there's another issue in verse 39. Look at verse 39 with me. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. Well, wait a second. What happened to Philip? Was he transported? Is it like Star Trek where they kind of beam him up and you have the little particles that go into the air, you know? Did he do a magic trick or something? What happened to Philip? Now, this is one of those passages in Scripture that we trust what the text says. And while you could say, oh, it just means he walked away or, you know, went away, it says he was in the water and the Spirit carried him away. Maybe he flew there. I don't know. But the eunuch didn't see him any longer. And so there was something like, you know, teleportation or transportation. We can't be sure, but it actually happened to this Philip. God had a different assignment for him. Now, if I was Philip, I would be wondering, why couldn't he have just teleported me there in the first place? Why'd I have to walk all the way from Jerusalem down to this point? But that, that doesn't matter. We do see that Philip was called to a different assignment, and he's taken away. But notice what the eunuch does. He goes away rejoicing. Remember, this man would have been cast out. He would have been rejected by the Jews because of his status as a eunuch. Yet he leaves rejoicing in what God has done, a transformed life. Let's finish the chapter in verse 40. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Traditionally, we find out that Philip actually stays in Caesarea and has four daughters and lived there for many years after that. And really, the narrative of Acts that focused on Philip ends here. But his, his example and his pattern of evangelism lives on. He was part, he was submissive, and he was part of sharing the gospel with this Ethiopian eunuch who was then transformed and saved through the word of God. You allow God to transform others. Sometimes people don't change like we want them to. Sometimes people don't change as fast as we want them to. They don't do all the things that we think they should be doing. They don't vote for the same party that we think they should be voting for. They don't practice all of our same customs and traditions. But are we the ones that change people? Are we the ones that do the work of changing someone's heart? And the answer is no. It is God. We allow God's gospel to transform the lives of others. As we close our service this morning, ask yourself these two questions. Do you believe, first of all, in the Lamb of God? You may have been at this church for a long time, maybe not as long. You may have grown up in church. You may have sang some of the songs that we sang this morning. 
your entire life. Maybe you haven't sang them at all before today. But has this Lamb of God transformed your life? Guess what? If you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then for all of eternity, you're going to be doing what we find in Revelation 5. You're going to be worshiping the Lamb of God because he's worthy of our worship. Do you believe in the Lamb? Secondly, do you share the Lamb of God? Are you faithful to share the gospel with others? Who in your life could God direct you to? Who in your life is God pointing out and saying, hey, share the gospel with this person? Do you allow God's word to direct your evangelism? Are you trying to do it all yourself, coming up with clever sayings and tricks? Or do you let the lion out? Do you allow God's word to speak for itself? I'm thankful for a dad who at one point heard and believed the gospel, who grew in his faith, and when I was six years old, shared the gospel with me one night after church so that I could have a relationship with Christ. Now, it wasn't him who actually did it, but he was dependent on God's spirit and seeing that I needed to understand the gospel, and he used the word of God to help me understand the gospel of God. And it's for that reason that I'm preaching to you this morning. Do you share the Lamb of God with others? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Thank you for how it's been preserved, inspired for years, Lord. We thank you for the legacy of Christians who have believed your word from the time of the apostles all the way until now. We thank you for the faithfulness of Philip who shared the gospel with this man. And God, we don't know what happened after this. We don't know if there was a huge revival in Ethiopia or if it just stayed with this man and his family. But this is a beautiful text, a beautiful example of your gospel being spread. Thank you for your salvation. May we praise you and worship you today for what you've done in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.